Our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 8. When I look at the sky which you have made, at the moon and the stars which you have set in their places, what are human beings that you think of them? Mere mortals that you care for them. And yet you have made them inferior only to yourself. You have crowned them with glory and honour. You have appointed them rulers over everything you made. You placed them over all creation, sheep and cattle and wild animals too, and the birds and the fish and the creatures in the seas. O Lord, our Lord, your greatness is seen in all the world. And so let's come joyfully to God in prayer. Let us pray together. Loving God, we are glad at the end of this Easter week to meet together again to offer our praise and our prayers. You have blessed us with signs of new life and new hope as trees burst into leaf and birds find places to nest. As the daylight hours increase steadily and the air is sometimes a little warmer, We are stirred once more to celebrate the very gift of life, and we praise you. Saving God, even as we delight in our own lives and the new life around us, we know that there is another story to tell. Humans like us have been careless in the way we have lived, damaging oceans, seas and forests destroying whole species of animal and plant life. And even in our own church and our own families, selfishness, carelessness and sinfulness leave a trail of sadness and regret. And we are sorry. Sustaining God, the mystery of Easter reminds us that however dark things may seem, However bad the news or frightening the world around us, you are here and you are still alive and active. Breathe into us new energy, new love, new hope, a new sense of adventure that we may live as Easter people in what sometimes feels to be a Good Friday world. Holy God, Creator, Redeemer and Sustainer, please accept our worship this day and equip us to live our faith in the days ahead. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, church. I read John chapter 20 and I read the entire chapter. The Empty Tomb. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been taken away from the entrance. She went running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and told them, They have taken the Lord from the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Then Peter and the other disciple went to the tomb. The two of them were running, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter, and reached the tomb first. He bent over and saw the linen wrappings, but he did not go in. 
Behind him came Simon Peter, and he went straight into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the cloth which had been round Jesus' head. It was not lying with the linen wrappings, but was rolled up by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. He saw and believed. They still did not understand the scripture which said that he must rise from death. Then the disciples went back home. Mary stood crying outside the tomb. While she was crying, she bent over and looked in the tomb and saw two angels there dressed in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had been, one at the head and the other at the feet. Woman, why are you crying? they asked her. She answered, they have taken my Lord away, and I do not know where they have put him. Then she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who is it that you are looking for? She thought he was the gardener. So she said to him, if you took him away, sir, tell me where you have put him and I will go and get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and said in Hebrew, Rabbanai, this means teacher. Do not hold on to me, Jesus told her, because I have not yet gone back up to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them that I am returning to him who is my father and their father, my God and their God. So Mary Magdalene went and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and related to them what he had told her. It was late that Sunday evening, and the disciples were gathered together behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish authorities. Then Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you, he said. After saying this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were filled with joy at seeing the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I send you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive people's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. One of the twelve disciples, Thomas, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. Thomas said to them, Unless I see the scars of the nails in his hands and put my finger on those scars and my hand in the side, I will not believe. A week later, the disciples were together again indoors, and Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and look at my hands. Then stretch out your hand and put it in my side. Stop your doubting and believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Do you believe because you see me? How happy are those who believe without seeing me? In his disciples' presence, Jesus performed many other miracles which are not written down in this book. But these have been written in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through your faith in him, you may have life. The end of the chapter. Amen. On my way to church this morning, I was debating, was this going to be one of those rare occasions when I throw away the sermon that I've 
carefully prepared and just talk. And then I remembered I always hate it when ministers or preachers stand up and they say, I was on my way to church and I felt that God told me to throw away what I just said and say something else. I don't feel that. I, I, just, I suppose it's a fact that this morning I hadn't even realised until I'd turned on my radio that the two former popes were going to be canonised. And that seemed to connect somehow with what I had been preparing and thinking about with what we were doing yesterday and so I have got my sermon and I will roughly stick to it, but it will be a bit of ad-libbing along the way, which when you know it's quite dangerous if I do it because I want to say stupid things when I ad-lib. But these two popes being canonised has caused a little bit of controversy, especially Pope John Paul II, because people have felt very free to point out that there were things going on in the church that he did not address particularly, although it was not, as far as we can tell, all that well-known at the time, the level of sexual abuse that was going on in the Roman Catholic Church. And people have said, well, how could he possibly be canonised if, if that was going on? And yet, as I heard that, I felt myself thinking about Peter, who had said, quite publicly and openly, I don't know Jesus, and yet he was canonised. Or Thomas, who had said, I have lots of questions, and he was canonised. Or Paul, who had gone round, round, rounding up uh, Christians and having them executed, and he was canonised. So the idea that you have to be a perfect plaster saint without any taint or sin or frailty doesn't quite work. Whether or not we agree with saints official is not the point. Saints as followers of Jesus are flawed and frail and failing. And as we sang in that song, they're people like us. We are saints in the making as a merry minimum. Over the last few months, we've focused quite a lot in our attention on people who had encounters with Jesus Right back in January, I was surprised it was that long ago when I looked through my sermons, we talked about John's account of the calling of the first disciples. The first two being Andrew and one who doesn't have a name, who were fishermen. Then Andrew went and found Peter and invited him to come and see. And then the next bit was Philip, who was called by Jesus, who invited Nathaniel to come and see. During Lent, we met Nicodemus, the curious Pharisee who came by night to see Jesus because he didn't want to be seen by the officials. The serendipitous account of the meeting with the Samaritan woman at the well at Sukkar, who actually went off and invited her neighbours to come and see this man who told her everything she'd ever done and who perhaps was the first missionary. And then there was a story of the man who was born blind, whose physical sight and spiritual insight grew and developed in the face of ridicule and rejection. His family kind of didn't quite know how to handle it, and his local synagogue threw him out. And then we had the family at Bethany, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, close friends of Jesus whose faith was challenged and then affirmed, first in tragedy and then in restoration. 
this model of encounter and the, see, the theme of seeing and being invited to see, literally or metaphorically, runs right through the gospel. And it's there again in that chapter that Antoinette just read for us. Chapter 21 of John's gospel, as we have it, is the penultimate chapter. But generally speaking, when I was learning about John's gospel, scholars think that actually it originally stopped at the end of chapter 21 and that chapter 22 was kind of the second edition add-on because the endings of the two chapters are remarkably similar. Whether that's true or whether that's not true doesn't really matter. We have three named followers of Jesus in this account and we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at each of their stories as they appear in that account and then just go on to think briefly about how any of that might speak to us. First of all is Mary of Magdala, Mary Magdalene, who at break of day comes to the tomb to discover that the stone has been rolled back and the body is gone. There's nothing supernatural in the story at this point, as John tells it. Rather, we have Mary, who is just distraught at what she has seen, running away to try and find help. And she bumps into Peter, and another unnamed disciple. John's quite good on these unnamed people, isn't he? Uh, and so she bumps into them, and they go off to the, the tomb, and she makes her way back, and she's wandering around the garden, weeping so much, I guess she can't even see properly. And she comes up to the tomb, and she peers into the interior, and through her tears, she sees two figures in white, two angels or messengers sitting where the body had been. And they, said, they ask her a question. They say, woman, why are you crying? That's a pretty dispassionate inquiry, isn't it? Not, oh dear, but just like, well, why are you crying? What are you, what's the matter? And she says, well, they, whoever they are, have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where his body's been put. And that conversation ends and she, she moves away, stumbling around and almost bumps into a man who says the same thing to her. And actually it's quite stern and cold. Woman, why are you crying? You see, we've heard this story so many times and we know how it turns out that we don't see that this is kind of a uh, formal address to her. Woman is the term that Jesus used to address his own mother at Cana when she asked him to do something about the failing wine supplies. And so he addresses Mary in the same way. And Mary thinks this must be the gardener, because it's kind of not the way a friend would speak to you, I guess. And she says, well, excuse me, have you moved the corpse? Because if you have, and if you tell me where it is, I'd really like to go and take it and look after it. He's utterly convinced that Jesus is dead. And if he's not going to be allowed to rest in the borrowed tomb, then she will find him somewhere where he can rest in peace. I don't think it's a terribly practical suggestion for a woman on her own at the break of day. But this is the way she's motivated to react. Mary. One word that changes everything. Isn't it strange that you can be in the noisiest, busiest place, your mind full of a thousand and one thoughts, and if somebody says your name, 
It cuts through all that and draws your attention. Mary. One word, cutting through the grief and confusion. And what does she say? Is it a question or is it an acclamation? Rabboni? Rabboni! We don't know. Perhaps a bit of both of them. But whatever she feels, she reaches out to try and take hold of him, to embrace him, to cling on to him. And is almost immediately rebuked. The King James rendering is especially harsh. Do not touch me. Probably a more accurate and slightly softer rendering is, don't cling on to me. You can't hold on to me. But that's no less significant for Mary. What was lost has been found. The one who was dead is alive. And she, of course she wants to hold on to Jesus with every ounce of her being. But he's having nothing of it. Ouch. That must have felt quite hard for her. Very hard for her. Instead of savouring her moment alone with Jesus, she's sent back off to the male disciples to tell them that Jesus is returning to God. And having done that, in this account, and as I looked on through the rest of the scriptures, she disappears. We never hear of her again. So that's Mary. And then Simon, probably the one we think we know the most about. The one in whom Jesus recognized the qualities that earned him the new name of Peter, the rock. The one who was like granite, the, the rocky one. The one who abandoned a fishing career and seemingly a family to become a disciple of this itinerant rabbi. The one who one minute could say to Jesus, yep, you are my Lord, and the next minute say something that earns the sternest of rebuke. Get thee behind me, Satan. The one who could declare his willingness to die with Jesus and then soon afterwards say, nah, him? No, never met him, never heard of him because he was so frightened and he dashed off to hide. In the story we have in John's Gospel of the resurrection, he's notable by being there and by saying nothing. There's not one word attributed to Peter in that. When he and the other disciple meet Mary hurtling along the road, breathlessly recounting her news of a rolled back stone and a missing body, their response is to start running themselves to the burial site. Whether, as tradition tells us, the second disciple was younger and probably fitter than Peter, we don't know. We're just told that he ran faster and and got there ahead of Peter, and then he paused outside the tomb. Maybe waiting for Peter to catch up. Maybe out of respect. Maybe because he was afraid. Maybe because he just didn't know what to do. But sometime later, might have been seconds, might have been minutes, who knows, Peter arrives and hurtles straight into the tomb in the way that only Peter can do. Act first, think later. He sees the folded up clothes, but he doesn't know what that means. It's the other disciple with no name who is identified as believing. 
But still, not a word is spoken. So Peter steps out of the tomb, blinking into the daylight and heads back with his other disciple towards home, trying to work out what on earth has happened, what it is they have seen or failed to see. They tell the other disciples, and then Mary arrives and tells them what she's seen. And then they shut the door and they lock it because they're terrified of arrest or execution or worse. And evening comes. And all of a sudden, there's Jesus who says, hello. Can't think of any other equivalents to hello. I don't know what you would say as like in a Glasgow kind of uh, way of sp- speaking. But shalom, the peace be with you, is just basically, hiya, hello, good day. The everyday greeting you say without really thinking about it. And then Jesus shows them his hands scarred by nails, and his side pierced by the soldier's sword. And Peter is still there, silent. I wonder what's going on in his head. Does he he look around at the others? Does he wonder if Jesus will go, ah, yes, I'm Peter. Hmm, what was it you said? How does he feel as the disciples, his companions, sorry, start to relax? And they even seem to be relieved about what's happened, that maybe there is hope again. Because he knows fine well that he's a failure. He denied knowing Jesus. He had rushed into the tomb but couldn't even see what was right in front of him. And now he had actually seen Jesus. He either dare not, or cannot, or will not speak. Jesus is the one who breaks the silence, that mixture of confusion and delight, of fear and hope, and gives the command to those assembled. He says, just as I have been sent, so I'm sending you. And he blew on them. Maybe individually, maybe as a kind of collective blowing, invoking the Holy Spirit, the promised paraclete, the one who would come alongside them. But I do wonder, was he looking at Peter as he said, if you forgive any, their sins are forgiven? Or as he said, and if you don't forgive, they won't be forgiven? And how might Peter have felt as he heard those words? Was he reassured or rejected, responsible, reinstated? We don't know. But for the earliest readers of the gospel, it is almost certainly where they left Peter, silently listening to the words of the the risen Christ. And only later would that account of his one-to-one with Jesus on the seashore be added, providing for others, I think, more than for Peter, strong affirmation of his forgiveness by and commission from Jesus. Perhaps other people questioned whether Peter should be canonized or not and then there's Thomas Thomas the one who for whatever reason wasn't there on that first day when they encountered Jesus the one who didn't see the scarred hands and the wounded sides didn't hear the words of commission or have Jesus breathe the Holy Spirit onto or into him and seeing his friends and hearing their tales he's incredulous 
just as, in fact, they had been. It isn't the case that all the others believed and Thomas doubted. What actually happened is that for some reason, lost in the mist of time, he wasn't there on that first occasion. It could so easily have been Peter who had said to Mary after her encounter, well, you know, unless I see it, I'm not going to believe it. But it was Thomas, late to the party, who had the courage and the impetus to say out loud what I suspect others secretly thought. It must have been a long week for Thomas, feeling a bit on the outside. The one person who was not there when this special thing happened. The one who'd asked the questions and expressed the doubts that the others, despite their claimed belief, still clearly had because they were too scared to put their money where their mouths were. They locked the doors. They weren't out there telling the good news. They wanted to be where nobody could get to them or hurt them or frighten them. Maybe they did believe in their heads and possibly their hearts, but certainly it didn't move their feet. Maybe Thomas wasn't the only one with questions. And so there they are again, behind closed doors, possibly locked doors. I think there's a difference in the Greek, but we won't worry about that. And Jesus says, hello. Oh, oh, bless Thomas, Jesus realises. And no doubt, observing the incredulity on Thomas's face, Jesus says, well, okay. Feel my hands. Touch my side. Do you think Thomas actually did that? Because I'm not convinced he did. It's always seemed to me that his declaration of faith comes so quickly that it's almost as if something clicks in that moment. Interestingly, none of the others is recorded as making a declaration of faith. But Thomas is the one of all of those who says to who Jesus is out loud, my Lord and my God. The one who asked the most questions, the one who is cruelly nicknamed the doubter, because after all, we don't talk about Peter the denier or Judas the betrayer, or whatever. It's Thomas who recognises this is who Jesus is. And that, for him, is the end of the story, too. So three people who we are told had encounters with Jesus closely after the resurrection. Mary, the grief-stricken woman, blinded by her tears, who recognises her teacher as he calls her name. Peter, the normally bold fisherman, racked by the guilt of betrayal, who blunders into the tomb, sees but doesn't understand, and appears to be silenced as a result. And Thomas, who wasn't there, who asked the questions nobody else was brave enough to ask, but is the one who declares, my Lord and my God. What about us? What about you? What about me? Where do we fit into the story? Yesterday at the church meeting, I used this picture, which I first used here five years ago. It was my sudden realisation that this was the weekend five years ago that I preached here the first time. 
It's a picture I love. It's a picture of Jesus who is smiling. That's also a good sign. And it's composed of hundreds, I suspect, I haven't counted them, of small figures in black and red, just to give some contrast, but people of different shapes and sizes, representing different nationalities, different abilities, different genders, persuasions, whatever it might be. All of human life is there within the body of Christ. All of us are the saints in the making. All of us matter. Whether we think we're like Thomas or Peter or Mary of Magdala or Nicodemus or the one at the well or the blind man or Martha or the other Mary or Lazarus or any other person, named or unnamed, in the Gospels. All of us matter. All of us have our part to play. And to all of us, Jesus says, just as I was sent, so I send you. Amen. Let us pray. At the beginning of a new week, we come to worship thee and prepare ourselves for the coming week. We do not know what the coming week will hold, but know you will be with us. Today we pray for the people of Syria and other countries where they are persecuted for their Christian faith. Here in the West, we may experience other problems when we try to witness our faith, but we are fortunate to have freedom to do this. At 8BC, we are happy to have children and loving parents worshipping with us. We have heard in the past week on the news of many tragedies. Comfort those who mourn. Those who sit at the beds of the terminally ill of any age. Let us rejoice with those who have just got married, received good news they were waiting for. This is the pattern of life. We give thanks for our Minister Katrina and all the work she does, especially when she is tired. At 8BC, we give thanks for all who give of their time and money. As we leave the gathering place, may we give thanks for what it means to us as individuals and guide us in the future. Amen. God of life, forgive our denial of life our destructions of its hopes, our denial of its needs, and our distorting of its possibilities. Fill us with your spirit of life, that we might be people of life, servants of life, encouragers of life, signs of Christ, the life of the world, today and every day. Thank you.